Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, my name's Anne Luke, and I'm a lecturer in Childhood Studies at the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. Um, and I'm talking today about my book, Youth and the Cuban Revolution, uh, published by um, Lexington Books uh, in 2018. Um, I'm speaking to you from uh, Yorkshire in the United Kingdom, um, and I'll be talking to um, my colleague, Professor Park Kumaraswamy. So hi, I'm Parkamara Swami. I am I've known Anne for quite a, a long time. Our research careers have gone along the same path. Um, and I am at the University of Nottingham. I'm the director of the Center for Research on Cuba and the Cuba Research Forum, which is an international network of researchers from and on Cuba. So as I said, I've known Anne for many, many years. It's a real pleasure to have this conversation with you today and, and to actually catch up in the midst of our busy academic lives with the research that you've been doing. Um, I have been present at many of your research papers, your conference papers, and I've read a lot of your work, but it's gonna be a pleasure to talk to you today about the work that you're presenting uh, in your, your book. Thanks very much, Paul, thank you. So um, let's try and keep it informal and and um, I, I, you know, because I do know where your work has come from, um, but going back a few years, um, and this is this is a, a book that's bringing together a lot of research, I think in that sense it's a very, very broad, but at the same time very profound study of a topic that intrigues a lot of people, just Cuba watchers or scholars of Cuba, and that is, um, you know, when you look at I don't know, a phenomena like the literacy campaign and the involvement of youth or um, other kinds of voluntary brigades and the enthusiasm of youth um, in the 1960s. I think a lot of people are curious as to why, why that, that came about, why they were able to galvanize youth in such a way, what youth brought to the whole system um, and youth culture more, more generally. So what was your initial motivation for this study? What, what was the thing that made you think, this is something that I really want to pursue? Um, right, I think um, it was it was several things. Firstly, I think in one way it was just, when I looked at sort of studies of Cuba, um, I found there were a lot of in-depth and really very interesting studies of the political history of the revolution. But I found myself at a moment where there were an increasing number of studies of the kind of, of cultural history. Um, and I felt this was kind of, and, and this has been, as you say, a study of really a lot of years. I started looking at, um, at youth in Cuba around about 2000. Um, and um, I found that there was there were increasing numbers of studies. There were ethnographies, there were studies, there were literary histories, cultural histories, which uh, an increasing number of those, which I found were telling maybe the story of the revolution in more nuance and more, the Cuban revolution in more nuance. And overlapping at the same time, um, there was kind of an increase in um, an increased um, interest in the history of youth and childhood, and in kind of 
an increased theorization of youth and childhood. Um, so in constructions of youth and childhood. So all of those kind of came together at that moment in the early 2000s, I think, and gave me a kind of, I suppose, a framework or an in, I kind of engaged with what was happening in a few fields and tried to bring it together at that time to, to look at the uh, Cuba and the Cuban revolution. And, and with those kind of, as you mentioned, those kind of sweet moments like the 1961 literacy campaign and seeing these, um, brigades of very, very young people, even children, as young as children, um, traveling from Havana to, to the countryside um, to work as literacy teachers. So, um, uh, and, and although by and large, that, that's, it's partly mythologized, there, there, there were, you know, um, tens of thousands of young people who traveled um, for months and the schools were closed um, for, for, I think it was eight or nine months, the schools uh, were closed. Um, in 1961, while the country became literate, so it's so start it from the starting point of the better known moments of the 1960s um, that young people have been involved in. I started to work um, kind of digging through the um, the kind of policy history, the political history, um, and the cultural history to find out um, to sort of what was the story behind these kind of big moments that that I that I sort of first learned about, and I found it was an absolutely fascinating history, and it took me. Um, to, not really to places I necessarily expected to to go to. So so I learned about um, a very interesting cultural history of youth, which um, um, which I didn't um, again, which um, I wasn't necessarily where I expected to to, to travel. But um, the 1960s, of course, was a very interesting um, decade. For, for young people across the globe and, and um, sort of things like 1968 as this moment of youth movements. It was very interesting to see how that global youth culture was received in, in uh, Cuba and, and, or if it was received even, and, and if it was, how it was kind of um, represented in, in Cuba and equally how Cuban culture was represented by the global youth movements. So it was quite interesting to see it re-represented when I was looking at, um, looking at, um, the pictures of um, of student protests um, across the across the globe that were reproduced in the Cuban press at the time, and the, the pictures of uh, the the banners of Che Guevara in Paris or in uh, Mexico City um, that were reproduced in the Cuban press. So you see that re-representation of a Cuban icon uh, within. So so there was there was sort of it was very interesting um, to see how um, there was a kind of uh, a, a there was. A kind of mutual influence of uh, of youth movements, but there certainly wasn't the same youth movements uh, in Cuba or the same influences that you saw um, in in other countries in, in Western countries. Um, it, it, you see sort of more, much more hybrid kind of forms. So you saw same, some similar musical influences, um, but you saw also sort of revolutionary influences coming from the kind of these, these, the new revolutionary politics, which, which were very important, particularly in those cultural movements of the 1960s. So can I just pick up on that? Because, you know, one of the, one of the things I noticed and, and several of us are working in the area of, of cultural studies more broadly, um, notice about the way that Cuba is sometimes understood um, especially in those early decades, is it's either understood under the lens of the Eastern Bloc, even in the 60s, or it's understood um, it's understood less in, in a sort of a, a third world, southern hemisphere, you know, global south sort of way, um, or it's understood through the lens of 1968 and all of those things. And I guess sort of spatially and even in terms of time, 
um, what you're talking about is a mutual influence. I hadn't really thought about it that, that much, but there's been so much attention paid, for example, to the commemorations of 1968, the anniversaries of 1968 in Europe and in the US. Is it saying too much? I know that as Cubanists, we like Cuba to be the center of everything, but is it saying too much to say that the Cuban revolution and the, you know, the international festivals that were held were themselves some sort of impetus for youth movements in other parts of the world? Or was Cuba more on the receiving end of those youth movements, either in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc or in Western Europe and um, the US? I, I think it's a case of mutual, definitely a case of mutual influence. And I think obviously, I think Cuba was very influential and, and um, um, there, there's some very interesting research on the new left. You, you'll know um, Dr. Kepa Arteris' work on, on the new left in, in Cuba. Um, so there was a lot of, um, uh, a lot of tra the traveling of ideas between the European new left and the, and the Cuban revolution in the 1960s. So we saw an intellectual, there was certainly an intellectual exchange of ideas, which was really, really important um, uh, from both uh, perspectives. Um, so uh, you, I don't think we could, I, I wouldn't want to say that, um, I wouldn't want to, foreground, you know, a one-way influence, really. I think we much more see a kind of rich exchange of ideas. I think what gets lost is the fact that Cuba was really a, a that there was so much debate. I think what, what people lose with um, when uh, looking maybe from the outside or maybe people who, who aren't students of, of Cuba is how much, just how much debate went on in Cuba in the 60s and how much, um, and this debate on what what is the revolution? What do we mean by revolution? And that that real um, uh, sort of uh, need to kind of understand and define what it define what it meant to be young and revolutionary was part of a battle that young people were a really important part of. And and for example, if you looked at young poets, uh, and one of the I, I looked at a couple of groups of young poets, and um, one of them, quite an interesting group, was surrounded a um a um a, a um journal called Caiman Barbudo um which was just it just had two year in its first phase it just had a two year uh, sort of publication window from 1965 to 1967 i think it was um but really important again about uh, for this group for defining what it meant to be revolutionary um so and 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 it, it wasn't about um, and it was all about sort of questioning the boundaries. Um, and I think that's really what was in, uh, what is important is that, um, is that, that those, those uh, Cuba was at the forefront of those debates. Um, so, uh, and those debates were happening, not just in Cuba, but in, so I suppose in, in um, that, th those kind of intellectual debates happening within the kind of international voices on the left, if you like. So it's kind of a trust in youth who are predisposed to be questioning and pushing the boundaries yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. through their very you know, nature as young people. Um, one of the things that I think about in terms of the, the lit literacy campaign and how, how influential it was is that it's also in a sense future-proofing the revolution. So you have got on board a whole generation who will then spend several decades contributing to that revolutionary project. Um, is there something, is there another reason, do you think? Are there any other reasons why that investment in youth, well, was there an investment in youth? I'm assuming that there was. And why focus on that generation? Why not focus on... Yeah, I mean, I, 
I mean, one thing I say in the in the book is that almost we could almost say that there is only one generation, the generational revolution. So since 59, are we actually I mean, we have sort of maybe slight we I, and I think possibly the only time we can really talk about a, a real um, sort of break would be the special period. Um, because that experience of going through the special period is, I, as I think, that real, um, uh, which was in the 19, just uh, for the, the non-Cubanist uh, listeners to this, the, the 1990s in Cuba. Um, but um, you almost, once you have um, from, and if we take, for example, if we take the um, Diaz Canel, who is the, the Cuban leader today, he's someone who was born like all now, almost now getting to an age where almost everyone was born within the revolutionary period. So we almost could say we have a full, a whole population who are the, the generation of revolution. So it's, you almost could talk um, in, in terms of youth as, um, as being a, a sort of, as a way to create this, this revolutionary kind of movement that transcends age almost. Um, so, so I think, um, I mean, I think there was a pragmatic, there was also a pragmatic, of course, in the 1960s, there was something pragmatic about uh, mobilizing young people. Um, but also, um, I think it, I think it was also, so yes, there was, there were pragmatic reasons, there was, um, and also there was the kind of, the, um, there were reasons which were aligned to things like the um, a culture of uh, education, which was which came from sort of a pre-revolutionary day, so a, a very very strong um, uh, belief that um, education would be the cornerstone um, of the new uh, of the kind of the emergence of the new Cuba, and I think youth would were very aligned to that, not only as uh, students but also as teachers. So um, so which was partly from the literacy campaign, but we saw it in other areas of education as well with university students teaching younger, uh, younger um, uh, children, etc. So, so um, I think um, uh, that there was sort of various, various ways in which young people were um, sort of, they were foot, foot soldiers of the, of uh, the Cuban Revolution in the 1960s for very practical reasons. Um, of course, there was a, a large exodus of, um, of, um, of professionals in the early days of the revolution. So there was a, you know, so you can see there were practical reasons for involving young people in the, the revolution. Um, there were also, I mean, it, it also isn't entirely a, um, a sort of rosy portrait. There were also um, fault lines uh, with, um, uh, with young people. There, it wasn't entirely an easy, I mean, I think the word that I would describe if we talk about youth and young people in the 1960s is effervescent. And, and, it's, and I, I, when I first came across it, and it's a word that's used in a lot of the sources um, in Cuba, effervescence. And when I first came across it, I was kind of into this, I sort of thought of it as something like quite frothy and nice. But the more I came across effervescence, it, it kind of seemed like a pot bubbling that was almost going to explode. And actually it was an uneasy, something a little bit uneasy, the effervescence, and actually something a little bit stressful about this, um, trying to define and redefine the revolution and being unsure. It's very easy with hindsight to know what the revolution is or became, et cetera. But at the time, the struggle to define and be part of uh, and to create this revolution was actually quite a, you know, a, a um, it was a, um, a much more uncomfortable moment of history to be a part of um, than, than, um, 
we might understand it um, by looking when we look back. So, so that I think is, you know, that's, I th I'm not sure that answers your question, but. <laughs> no, that's good, it's really, really interesting. It's, it's fascinating. One of the things that, you know, in, in, in relation to what you're just saying about the effervescence and the sort of the slightly um, risky side of that amount of energy and the amount of um, uh, activity that is bubbling over. Uh, and, you know, as a Cubanist, I know about some of the more well-known episodes of tensions, whether it's Silvio Rodriguez stepping over the mark a little bit or the, having his hair cut or the Beatles. You know, you go to Havana and people will say, oh, we weren't allowed to listen to the Beatles. And, you know, when John Lennon, his statue was installed, there was great excitement and the Rolling Stones played in Havana and there was great excitement. But what were some of the, the main fault lines? You used the word fault lines. What were some of the main tensions where that effervescence spilled over into something that was a little bit less um or perceived as a little bit less positive um yeah i think um one of them or the main one that i found um and this is where in the book i talk a, a little well in a few chapters i i look at um these um the concept of moral panic and how this this has come in and it still does actually the interesting thing about moral panic and youth is that you it tends to recur and and that's that's actually part of the original theory of moral panic that Sam, stanley cohen cohen came up with is that often issues will actually that either they'll go away or they'll recur and this this happens in cuba and it's, it's a really interesting one and it, it often is this worry about um young people uh, not working. There's a real fear, and there was in the 60s, there's, there was a fear about um, young people who were neither working nor studying, and particularly young people not studying. Um, so, uh, and th this was kind of exaggerated, and the way that moral panic works is it becomes amplified, so it becomes something that is deemed to be more of a problem than it was, and that happens a lot with young people, so that when, um, uh, so that um, there were two um, solutions which were over exaggerations in the 19th, uh, in the, well, one in the 19, early 70s and one in the 60s. So in the 1960s, um, uh, there were um, what, what have now been written about quite a bit, I think, um, uh, sort of um, work camps that were, were created, I'm remembering the dates, was that I think 1964 65, to 66? 65 to 67, yeah. thank you, um, called UMAPS, um, where um, some young, mostly young men who were not working and not studying uh, were sent and they were closed down in 1967. Um, and um, in 1971 or 72, um, the Ley Contra Vagancia um, was passed, the, the, the law against uh, vagrancy. Um, now these, in I, what I suggest is this is part of the moral panic against um, uh, the moral, uh, part of the um, sort of the cycle of moral panic against young people who, who, who are uh, seen as, as, as not, not working and not studying. Um, and you see it a little bit, um, you see it a little bit within the youth cultures as well, a small, on a small, in a smaller way. And you see as well uh, recurring moral panics happening uh, later on in the revolution as well. But those particular two quite dramatic policy responses, I think were quite emblematic of um, uh, of uh, of those moral panics. The other way place you see the moral panics actually rather strangely is within the very 
vanguard organizations. So you see it within the political activist organizations, um, so the young communist organizations, um, and you see it within the um, uh, within the kind of what, what the, the the system of um, what was called autocritica, so the system which uh, the organizations uh, used to, um, if you like, to um, I'm trying to think how I describe autocritica in the book. Um, a system of um, kind of uh, self-reflection, self, -reflection, self um, um, uh, uh, sort of turning, if you like, turning the camera on oneself to, um, to uh, I suppose, criticize elements within the organization. A lot of that was also a reflection of a moral panic happening within the organization. So um, as young people, we are failing. So, and part of that was this amplification of the vision of young people, of the vision of what young people should be. So if, because of that construction of young people that there was within the discourse, um, that, that amplification of the vision of the uh, kind of heroic nature of young people, it meant that the vanguard organizations had, a, had an ideal to live up to that was absolutely impossible. And therefore um, were, were constantly, and it really is quite interesting to see the kind of, not just in the kind of autocritica, these kind of more public um, self-criticisms, but even in the in the more um, in in the sort of letters to the to, to the to their to their um, to their own newspapers, the, the kind of almost like low low self-esteem. That why aren't we doing any better? You know. Um, so um, and and I think that's uh, again symptomatic of um, that um, uh, the creation of moral panic because of those very high expectations of young people. But they're still very, the, the high expectations of young people are still very much there in Cuba today. And this, that still sets up a kind of generational divide, I think, because, um, because uh, young people never really quite do what older people think they should be doing. And yet there's still so much of the future of the revolution, which is um, laid upon their shoulders. So um, there's contradiction, isn't it, really? That, and, and in some ways we're going to see you as children. We're not going to give you the, the full agency. That's the interesting th thing about youth in any culture. Absolutely. That, uh, sort of depending on you to have the energy to do the things that we can't do, but at the same yes. time, do it our way. Otherwise uh, you're overstepping the boundaries. Or Absolutely, you know. absolutely. And actually so when you, you look into... Sorry, go on. Sorry. You also no, had a lot of fun. Um, if I remember some of the seminar papers that you gave in the past and conference papers, you had a lot of fun looking at some of the imagery as well, didn't you? There's some of the images that that were used to represent this new flowering youth um, under the revolution. Say a little bit about that, because I think I just remember looking at the fashion, actually, of the oh. 60s. Yes, I mean, absolutely. I'm trying to think. Um, I mean, I mean, one thing I've actually done subsequently um, to to the, to the work on the uh, in the book is I've I've actually been looking into the 1970s, which itself is an absolutely fascinating decade because you do see some obviously things things are, were quite different, the, and obviously the the kind of very um, almost better known fashions of the 1960s. Um, it, in the 70s, we, we see a very interesting move in, uh, in Cuba amongst young people. And the one thing which I found absolutely fascinating was this, um, which I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but I found this young, the, the young women in, in Cuba um, began again, which I have found no evidence of in the 1960s, began celebrating the festival of Quince again, after I have, I found nothing in the 60s. I'd love to know if anyone has found any 60s celebration of, 
of the Quince Festival. Um, I found one reference to it in one cartoon in the 1960s, but in the 70s, suddenly the Quince, which is the, the, that kind of um, the, the celebration of coming of age at the age of 15 for, for young women, um, it became uh, once again socially acceptable and that and the um the changing of dresses and and the idea that you could sort of celebrate the quince differently perhaps um with you know without the traditional um uh, 17 different dresses although i think today in cuba we're seeing the 17 different dresses again perhaps <laughs> and uh, um so um yeah it's very it's interesting to see how i'm trying to think what other yeah the, the um yeah i'm trying to think what other what are the kind of imagery we, we are seeing from? from yeah, well, I remember looking at magazine covers. I remember sort of the kind of a, a it was sometimes a mishmash of, of what you might imagine to be sort of the kind of guerrilla figure, uh, the Verde Olivo, but also giving it a little bit of a contemporary touch. And <laughs> I, I just remember it being, looking very stylish. It was a little bit like looking at the, the um, you know, taking a kind of a fashion analysis of the Black Panthers or something like that. They just, oh, yes, yes. So amazing, you know. Yes. <laughs> Very superficial conversation we're now having, but, but you know. Yes, there's, so, a, there's some, some lovely cartoons. Actually, there's one cartoon that I analysed for the book, which was um, someone, um, it's a, a woman wearing a miniskirt. And because the, uh, the miniskirt was sort of quite controversial. I did talk to a couple of people who, um, who said they were kind of... Um, wearing miniskirts in Cuba in the 60s, particularly in Havana, they were sort of shouted at by some of the older people of an older generation or people tried to pull their miniskirts down. So, so in this particular cartoon, there's an old lady sort of shouting at this young woman in the miniskirt. But what I loved about it is the fishnet stockings have got a little a little arrow to them saying Echo in Cuba, like made in Cuba because they've been drawn, drawn on, you know, and, um, and, uh, and a, a little bit of a, and, and the caption saying, in my day, it wouldn't have been the same like the, the older woman. So showing a kind of generational angst there, a much more traditional generational conflict on, you know, which which um, which I thought was quite interesting because I hadn't there wasn't much of that elsewhere, that, that kind of generational conflict in that kind of cultural conflict. Um, so it was quite interesting just to see that standard what what you know which i'd seen elsewhere looking at 60s fashions a generational conflict between the miniskirt and you know um kind of the sexual revolution if you like um so it was quite interesting to to see that in that case but um but again cubanized everything seemed to be quite um everything was sort of given a cuban uh, although there were similarities you always saw a cuban angle on on uh, even those similar cultural forms I think there's probably a future research pro project on the quince as it's celebrated in Cuba and other parts of Latin America because I think it comes and goes with with the d different socioeconomic and political phases of any country's history. You know, it's fascinating. It I've, yes, I've been. It's it's one of those things. If I have if I have time ever, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to. <laughs> I'd love to look into that. I've written a little bit um, a little bit on it. There was a, a book which I think you published in as well on the 1970s, the forgotten decade. So I. Um, in Cuba, so I wrote a little bit on it there. Um, but it'd be lovely to look a bit more as, as the the quince as a, as that kind of uh, uh, across some um, uh, as kind of or even a two continent um, uh, analysis would be lovely, wouldn't it? Um, oh, such I know that you used uh, you know you did a lot of really in depth book, uh, research for the book for the study for the book for your PhD as well. Um, you did a lot of archival research and you did interviews. Can you tell me? I mean, is there a standout moment? Is there one of those interviews where you kind of thought? I've got it, I've nailed it. This is everything encapsulated or, or, or was there a particular 
series of publications that you felt gave you a real in to the topic? Was it one of those moments, one of those mm. revelation moments? It doesn't have uh, to be. No I don't think there was one. I think there are moments I, I remember fondly, like I remember twice, I remember participants breaking out into Beatles songs um, during my interviews, which I thought was, um, and, and so, so I remember like moments with great fondness um, and I, um, and I also, um, and I, I suppose I, I also reflect a lot that um, a lot of this, sometimes since I can carry out many of the interviews now, and, but even at the time I reflected that I was learning a lot about when I did the interviews as much as the sixties in Cuba. Um, so, um, so it was a, you know, I think there's a lot of methodological points that I kind of learned uh, on that basis. Um, in terms of um, in terms of kind of archive and I, I think one thing I've taken forward is those non-traditional sources, the using things like the cartoons, using the visual sources. Um, and I have been, I think that's probably been the most influential on what I've done next um, or, or what I'm doing now, because I found that um, uh, the that, for example, um, I'm, I'm, I've been looking for for a little while now about childhood as well as um, uh, as well as youth because I think it's quite a natural step to move on from youth to childhood and also has a very interesting construction um, in Cuba. So, um, so I suppose um, that has been and, and I think particularly for childhood again those visual sources and those representations are a really interesting way to um, um, to to build up that picture and and I think I am I, I can't get away from thinking um one thing that the book sort of almost quite unapologetically argues is that discourse matters it does matter how how young people it, agency matters it does matter that young people are given agency but how young people are represented also matters because moral panic creates policy it creates and because um uh because how um, because how a revolution presents itself presents itself creates um, international relations. So so actually, um, I, I I I try not to disentangle or not to only do one thing or the other. Um, so I found that that like, representation does still. Um, uh, it, I think it will always be part of um, the work that I do. And and I, but I think what I learned from doing the book was that that representation didn't just have to be textual and that those kind of um, uh, those other texts have been really useful, um, particularly, as I say, when looking at childhood have been have been quite useful. Yeah, but I mean, it really is a very kind of uh, holistic view and one that, that brings in and draws all the strands between different, different lenses by which we can view the same phenomenon. Mm. And I think that's really crucial, isn't it? Especially when you're looking at something like youth or childhood, uh, and you're looking at how important popular culture is and how important the cultures that are often seen as being trivial or banal yeah. or, you know, I was slightly embarrassed about talking about fashion there. That's just a, yeah. it's a it's kind of a reflection of how we tend to hire, create hierarchies of worth yeah. um, for, for particular kinds of texts. So especially with the subject matter that you're looking at, but, but I think more in general, it is really valuable work that you're doing in order to bring together through looking at some of the sort of more shadowy or less publicly visible or less um, authoritative in mainstream terms um, kinds of texts. That's exactly the kind of work that needs to be done because otherwise, you know, we, we end up with the same story again and again if we mm -hmm. only look at the, the grand narratives. Yeah. 
absolutely to surface it are much more interesting so congratulations and well done thank you paul well, thank you so much for talking to me it's been an absolute pleasure also, I think we could probably carry on a little bit. Is there anything else that you'd like to say that you think in terms of your contribution or um, you've told us a little bit about what you're doing next. Is there any more that you'd like to say about that, how it's going and, and what some of the challenges or, or opportunities are to do with that? Um, no, I just think that um, when you're like, I think when you're researching, sort of exploring an, another culture in so much depth, like both you and I are doing, uh, one thing I've learned is that... Um, I'll still be I'll still be doing this probably um, in twenty years time from now, and there'll still be more to learn, and there'll be more sources. I, I think that what you've just said about keep it, you know, uh, like that, that um, exploring different sources that that has kind of opened up more of a world to me. But I think that I think there'll be more silences that I need to keep on trying to write um, probably for the rest of my career. So um, so my work's cut out. I think. I look forward to that. I look forward to following the rest of that as well. So it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Anne. It really has. And I'm, personally, I'm very glad that on a Friday afternoon, we've had this opportunity to catch up on our research. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Pat. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online shy.org